I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Today we have with us Holly Hinchelwood, a speech-language pathologist with Wake Forest Baptist Hospital here in North Carolina, and a bilingual speaker herself of Spanish and English. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. So first, could you just introduce yourself and a little bit of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis, what that looks like? Yeah, so um, I am a practicing speech-language pathologist in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. But before that, I was a student in undergraduate studies at Wake Forest University is where I sort of got into um, my background with um, speaking a second language and got my interest in this particular part of the field, um, working with um, patients and families that speak more than one language. Um, I was really, really interested in linguistics, but unfortunately could not major in it. So I decided, well, I've always wanted to be bilingual, so I'm really going to try to um, work on my Spanish and become proficient with that to be able to communicate with others and maybe even work with it one day. And so I did a study abroad semester in Salamanca uh, in Spain and got you know, fluent at the conversation level for most you know, general topics. And then from there said, hey, like I could I could really keep going with this and, you know, meet new people and open up ways to work with many different people. Um, so I went back and did a gap year in Spain and lived in Orense in Galicia and um, taught for a little bit in a uh, public school in Galicia. Uh, I was an, uh, an English aide while I also worked on my Spanish and picked up a little bit of local language there, Galician, um, and met my husband. And so came back to the U.S. and did my undergrad or my master's in speech language pathology out in Texas with a bilingual program. And then um, my husband immigrated about three years ago to the U.S. and we got married. And so we speak um, Spanish and English at home. And then in my job, I am one of the primary therapists here at the hospital that work with our Spanish-speaking patients um, to help provide services that are more um, linguistically appropriate for them. What ages are you typically working with? So I work with pretty much all ages. Um, so essentially from two up is typically what I'll see. The bulk of my patients are um, older adolescent, adult, and um, advanced ages. So probably the bulk of my work is probably 18 or, or 16 or 18 plus. And then I do see um, some kiddos in the range of two to, to 16 as well. Wow. So that's a wide range. That's Wow. That's a really exciting job. So since you seem to have a lot of experience with um, bilingual children and adults, we were wondering if you could maybe describe the speech development of what is considered a normally developing bilingual child or adult, I guess. Yeah, so um, I got a chance to listen to a few of the podcasts before coming on. And I think that uh, in the first podcast with, um, I believe it was Tanya from Illinois, is that right? Mm-hmm. She, she did a great job of describing it. As she said, you know, there's, certain things that are going to remain the same. And then certainly there's big differences in that children are trying to incorporate two language systems. But we do expect that sort of the general phases of language acquisition or language development or speech development in bilingual children are going to be similar. You know, that first year is going to focus a lot on sound. So as those um, infants are 
learning what sounds are a part of those sound systems, whether um, it's a monolingual child learning the sounds of um, English or Spanish or Urdu or whatever their home language is versus a bilingual child who's sorting out two sound systems. But there's still you know, a lot of vocal play, the development from um, vocal play to babbling to developing those first words. Um, you know, we still see typically those same benchmarks are going to occur across languages where we start seeing the first words emerge around, um, you know, that first year. We start seeing that pick up throughout the first year into the second year. You know, we still typically see around two years, you're going to see that about 50 word vocabulary at least, um, and then hitting the lexical spurt. So kind of when all of a sudden it turns, seems like every day they're learning a new word for something and incorporating that into their receptive or their expressive vocabulary. So I agreed with her that there are many times where the development's gonna be similar. I think the, the complexity and the differences come, you know, depending on the input and output for the child about are we seeing a lot of vocabulary growth in um, English versus Spanish, or are we seeing it more balanced because they're getting pretty equal input from caregivers um, or the settings that they're in. Um, but that that's what we'll see with typical language development. We are gonna still see those sort of same milestones we wanna see those kids meeting. And when you say 50 word vocabulary, you mean total in all of their languages, correct? Correct, yeah. And that's something that comes up um, often in our field is that we wanna account for the total vocabulary. So sometimes you'll hear um, we'll talk about like conceptual scoring. And so that is um, taking into account that concepts are going to be spread across one or more languages. And so um, they may have, you know, 20 words in English and 30 in Spanish, or they might have one or two words in English and, you know, 40 in Spanish. But the, the, t the total system that we're accounting for is still going to, um, should match up with most of those milestones. Now, certainly, <laughs> those milestones, even with monolinguals, we always take those with a grain of salt because kids do develop at their own pace. And certainly we, we want to look at that child holistically as well. So I think you touched on this uh, already, but what would you say are the major differences between bilingual and monolingual children? Um, yeah, I think, I think something that we've also, our field has also started looking at is not only are what are some differences with development or similarities, but even with developing two languages, are there certain benefits that that might mm -hmm. confer on children even during development? So certainly there's research out there where um, we're seeing that being bilingual can give a benefit to an adult for slowing um, age-related cognitive changes or the onset of dementia. But there's also research out there showing that um, the benefits of bilingualism for developing children. For example, there's been research showing that it can be a buffer for low socioeconomic status. And so maybe kiddos who are coming from homes that are lower um, socioeconomic status, maybe don't have as rich language environments or opportunities as others, that bilingualism actually can still give them some benefits there because um, they're also getting there's research looking at the cognitive flexibility benefits. So these kiddos are developing a little bit differently in that where they are learning two language systems and switching between two language systems with different rules. These kids do have a slight, tend to have a slight advantage where um, that cognitive flexibility for thinking of new solutions to a problem or 
to looking at one thing a couple different ways is something that we're seeing. And so that's probably a difference that we like to, to talk about and highlight as parents are trying to help like support home language and, and on this quest to try to help their kids maintain um, two or more languages. Um, that's a huge benefit for kiddos as well. So, um, so I wanted to ask Holly, one of the things that I've read um, that might be a downside to bilingualism at this age or in general is that when you develop two languages, when it comes to vocabulary, you might have a lower number of words, if that's way for, you know, of testing. Uh, is it something you guys have seen? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I don't, in my practice, when I've been working with um, kiddos, I used to do some work with a bilingual preschool. You know, I often didn't feel like we saw less, um, a significantly less amount of vocabulary in these kiddos. And again, I think the importance is on our side as a speech language pathologist that we are looking at conceptual scoring, where we're really digging into accounting for both sides of the language. And there's certainly um, been some interesting research where if you have some of these kids that are um, doing um, like vocabulary tasks and you say, okay, I want you to name all the the foods you can um, in English, and they might name a few like hamburger and hot dog, but let's say they're also bilingual with Spanish, and then you ask them a question again in Spanish, you know, they, they may generate other words that are more pertinent in that particular language because their vocabulary is split. So they might say tortillas and tamales um, because that's what's going to be encoded with that Spanish vocabulary with that particular category. Um, conversely, you might see that um, certain um, settings, so like home vocabulary, you're going to see it maybe more in Spanish, whereas school vocabulary more in English. Um, so I, I don't, the, the times that I've seen kids with smaller vocabularies, it may be kiddos that were truly concerned about a language impairment, but not so much as a product of being bilingual. And I think you already touched on this a little bit earlier, but anecdotally, a lot of times you'll hear parents say that as a result of raising their child bilingually, their child had a delay or was slow to speak. Uh, is that something that's actually borne out in the research? I think something that um, in terms of bilingual development that we do have to be aware of is, so I think we you all have touched on this before too with the silent period. So for when you know, you have a new language introduced, so this would be more with either sequential bilinguals that um, are getting a language introduced later or simultaneous that maybe at home they were just with um, English or Spanish for a while and then had it added in with a new caregiver, kind of that time where they're not maybe producing much in that language, maybe they're not, um, they don't seem to be taking all of that in just yet. And it's sort of that time where the child is like listening and learning and sort of encoding. And then we'll see that output start a little bit later. Um, so we do see some delays there, um, which I think is typical. Like anybody who's learning a new thing, you need a little bit of time to sort of adjust. Um, and that's what we're seeing there. Um, but in terms of like looking at other things too, so when, when we do speech language evaluations, you know, not only looking at um, what words a child has or how they say them or how they put them together, but there's also other um, signs of development, things like 
um, the types of play that, that they display. Like, are they doing uh, imaginative play? Um, that's a part of development as well. And that's not so much bound to language um, in terms of like how many words are they saying, but are they um, engaging in that? Um, or for like really young infants, we might look at, do they show joint attention? And so that's when if I um, have a toy or a book and I'm looking at it, and I'm pointing to something there, that infant um, or toddler is looking at it with me. So we're jointly putting our attention in the same thing. And so again, those are skills that aren't um, encoded in actually producing language or understanding language, but do um, count as building blocks for language. And so again, if we're seeing concerns with those types of skills, then that's gonna be bigger red flags than if we're seeing a little bit of delay with verbal output. Okay. What would you say, I'm curious if you could like pinpoint, what would you say would be delay uh, production for a bilingual child in your opinion, professional opinion? So, you know, a lot, a lot of folks look at sort of the two years, um, two year old mark as a time when um, it's not a bad idea to go ahead and start thinking about, okay, you know, are we getting a little bit more delayed? Because typically by that point, you know, we're starting to see kids put words together. Um, I certainly think that you know, that can hold true too for bilingual uh, children as well. Um, you know, by that point, we should definitely be seeing verbal output. I'd, I would say that even, you know, pushing sooner to, you know, say about 18 months if we're not seeing output, I think it's never a bad idea to check in with that. And especially if there are other concerns in development. Um, so like I said, you're not seeing the typical development of sound play that um, infants and, and young, young toddlers should be displaying or if we're seeing concerns for like social interaction. So like I said, kind of that joint attention, um, the facial expressions, those would be like coupled with a delay in verbal output would definitely be red flags for me to say, yeah, that's time to come in and have a speech language pathologist take a look at that. Can you discuss what you think the most common misconceptions are about bilingual speech development that you've seen among parents or in the communities? Yeah, and so some of them are, I think, common ones across the board, even in society. So we certainly hear the the concern that um, teaching children to be, be bilingual confuses them, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the mixing of languages. Um, again, you know, this is not really a sign of confusion, but rather you know, at that point in the development, as they're developing two language systems, they may be mixing languages to sort of fill in gaps from the still developing areas of those two language languages, as well as, um, you know, it's interesting to looking at research and like how languages are mixed and code switching, you know, there are rules to that. And a lot of times you'll see that that's developing appropriately as well. And so somebody who's well-versed in the two languages will recognize that. Um, so that's one concern I see. And, you know, the other thing I, I talk to parents about is, you know, bilingualism or multilingualism is really more the norm globally. And we can't say that, you know, 60% of the world's population is walking around confused. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they developed and they got there fine. And that's the normal part of that development. I think the biggest thing um, our field has had to to adjust as more and, re more, and more research has come out is, um, the recommendation that, you know, if we have a child coming in, there's concern for speech or language delay, and the recommendation is made to not speak the native language at home. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we'll hear like pediatricians recommend this. And the intent is 
I think, good. But I think there's a huge misunderstanding there of telling parents that they shouldn't be doing that takes away from social connections. Um, if the parent is not able to provide a good language model with their with their second language, so let's say the home language is Portuguese and they the, the mom speaks some English but not very well, mm-hmm. um, and now we're asking that mom to speak to that child only in English and provide a poor language model. Um, and input is so critical for these kids that we're really doing them a disservice. And so that's a really big one that we see um, and is unfortunately still passed around um, with other medical professionals that don't have as much training or knowledge about bilingualism. And so we, we tell folks, no, absolutely not. You should be speaking your native language at home. We want them to have good language input. We want them to be connected to their family and their culture. And um, who's to say that cutting that out is, is in any way helpful for the child's development. Um, so that's a big one that we'll see. And then the other thing too we'll see is the the myth that if a child does have a speech language impairment or another disability, that they can't be bilingual. Mm-hmm. And generally the research on this topic has shown that for children who have a speech language impairment, learning uh, one language is hard. Learning two languages is also hard, but it's not too hard. There's no difference there in terms of the bilingual development other than the fact that they have a language disorder, but it's not going to make it harder. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the recommendation to, to pair them down to just one language is actually going to be hurtful for their language system. So if I were, you know, a monolingual English speaking parent and had a child with a specific language impairment, and I was considering putting that child into like a dual immersion school like SPEES, there would be no recommendation against that? Or what would be your opinion on that decision? So my opinion on that would be, so, you know, again, the input and output question um, comes up again. And so if this was a monolingual English-speaking child, um, the home language is English, the school language up until now has been English, um, you know, we've been working with this child maybe on helping to improve um, their language skills given their specific language impairment um, diagnosis. Um, certainly, there's no reason why um, they could not participate in a program like that. I think there's definitely a recognition that between the language impairment um, at baseline, um, we already know that learning English has been hard, that we would expect that we would also have trouble learning um, like, for example, at SPEES, Spanish would be hard on top of the fact that if that child is not getting input from home, again, you, you have less um, sources for that child to be learning from, essentially. Mm-hmm. So just because a child has a specific language impairment shouldn't exclude them from participating in a program like that. But we do know that um, their rate of learning or language acquisition in a second language is also going to be altered or delayed because of their underlying impairment. I'm curious, as we're talking about specific language impairment, can you just maybe quickly define what that means? Yeah, so what specific language impairment is, is it's um, a condition where a child has difficulties with language acquisition or use of language in the absence of other 
um, disabilities. So for example, it's been well documented that children with autism or children with Down syndrome have um, speech language difficulties of um, differing types. But these children who have specific language impairment don't have these other um, either medical or um, cognitive conditions that would explain a language impairment. Um, and so, you know, they're, they are typically developing most of the time in other areas. So in terms of motor development, in terms of um, play, in terms of, um, you, know, you know, physical development, all those good things, but the language system um, is not developing as it should. And so that would be a child with specific language impairment that we're trying to help. How prevalent is that? So there's that's a, a matter of great debate at this point because um, in the research, how that is defined has changed over time, um, as well as um, so how we define it, as well as how do we um, sort of set the criteria for when a child qualifies for that diagnosis. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not 100% certain what the current prevalence is rated at because of those debates right now. So I'm going to put you to the test here, if that's okay. I happen to have some friends who are bilingual themselves, and they are raising um, a kid with Down syndrome. And I was just wondering, I'm assuming this kid um, should pursue or is pursuing right now a speech therapy. So how would this work? Should this kid um, receive uh, speech therapy in both languages? Would uh, receiving therapy in one language help the other? How, how does this work? What would be your recommendation? What do you know about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of thoughts on that as well. So um, Catherine Conert is a researcher out of, I want to say, I want to say Minnesota, if I remember correctly. She looked a little bit at this, um, at the question of like, what language do we treat in? And, you know, there's kind of two thoughts. We can target things that are um, common to both languages to try to have effect through both of them. So a good example of this is um, so for children who have um, a speech impairment, um, issues with articulation, if it's a sound common to both languages, we might target that sound knowing that we're going to have effect for both languages. Um, on the flip side of that, we may select to try to treat issues that are specific to a certain language to try to help teach and um, coach that skill because um, it, it's going to need specific teaching. So there may be a certain sound um, that's only in one language that we may need to target separately. Um, this, I think, also brings in the question of, you know, what languages do your treating therapist speak? Um, and this is a huge issue in that, you know, we have lots of um, speech language pathologists out there. Many of them are monolingual. Some are bilingual, but then the question is, are they bilingual in the same language as the child is? <laughs> and so, um, Certainly, you know, for school-aged children, you know, we see that treating in English is not um, bad. It can actually be, it's actually good, but we want to be careful about what we're treat, what our treatment targets are. So typically at that point, um, you know, the child is in an uh, English uh, school environment. And so we would want to tar target more academic targets. Um, and then talk about how can we support home language with parents to sort of complement what's being done with therapy in the school. Um, so kind of coaching parents about how can we support language development in the second language as well. 
um, for younger kids, so for kids that might be in early intervention, um, ideally we want to be trying to treat in the home language. So if that's the language that's going to be, um, or the home language is. So because, you know, we have kind of like you, Sarah, that do the one parent, one language approach. And so again, we're going to target probably similar strategies in improving the input for the child, uh, modeling, um, and trying to elicit output. But we are going to be somewhat constrained by what that clinician is able to, to speak in. Um, so it's a complicated answer. Uh, I think the short answer is, you know, we see benefits from treating in English, but we always, if we're unable to treat in the second language, we always need to still keep that in consideration. And how are we supporting that? Whether it's the use of home programs, you know, training strategies that are going to work for both um, the L1 and the L2, um, as well as, you know, there are some that are able to work with an interpreter to help target home languages mm. or a, an L1, L2. Um, so that's a thorny, thorny question. <laughs> so I think this kind of ties together with uh, another question that I have for you. So you've talked about how you interpret testing when testing is done to a bilingual child or, or adult. I'm curious to see if the testing, the actual testing tools that you use differ if you're treating a monolingually raised child versus a bilingual child. So I think if we have a child coming in for a speech language evaluation and they are bilingual in the sense that they are using uh, two or more languages, whether it be home versus school or um, with different caregivers, we do need to attempt to evaluate in all languages that that uh, child is actively using. Um, that does consider or, or does require some forethought and consideration of how we go about doing that with the use of uh, interpreters or trying to identify a clinician who's bilingual or multilingual in the languages that are used. Um, Apart from that, they are, most of the testing battery available to us are developed on monolingual English-speaking children. And so clinicians who are administering those tests do need to recognize that the child being assessed does not meet the normative sample that was used to develop that test and as such that standardized tests, test scores obtained um, really can't be considered valid. Certainly it can give good information about how the language system is working in, in that particular language. Um, but it should be supplemented by other things such as a thorough like parent interview about the language history, the concerns. Um, we should try to do language sampling where we actually record a sample of um, the language produced by the child to analyze for vocabulary, for grammar, um, for articulation. Um, and then we should also be, if they're school age, talking to um, the teacher. Um, you know, what concerns might they have? What are they noticing? How do they um, notice they're really being with their peers? There is one test recently that's come out for bilingual Spanish-English children here in the U.S. called the BESA. Um, and it has been developed specifically for um, children four to six to help address this problem of they're not in the normative sample. So it was normed on bilingual English speaking or English Spanish speaking children of different levels of dominance um, to try to help fill this gap. But the field has a very long way to go to get 
assessments that are specifically normed to this population. That's great that they have that one test, and then I like the name. Yeah, <laughs> and they're, the funny thing is they're working on doing an extension for it to increase the age range that can be assessed with it. Uh, and I had to give a little bit, they call it the BISMA. Um, I was going to guess that. I was like, it's going to yeah, be. <laughs> it is. Yes. It's a bilingual Spanish English. Um, I forget what the M is. And then I think E is extension, but, but they, they went on with it and they kept up with the, with the BESA theme. <laughs> I love it. Um, is there any specific advice or tips you would have for parents? Um, of bilingual children, both in terms of just home language practices, as well as um, with seeking care, how to advocate for their child, what kind of care to look for if they think they need it, anything like that? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, for typically developing children, as well as children with language impairment, the importance of ensuring a rich language environment um, you know, we talk about um, narrating daily events um, and incorporating more rich language models that way. We work with parents on, you know, if story um, storytelling or storybook um, time is not a part of the home, is that something is that something that can be incorporated because those are promoting speech language skills as well as early literacy skills. Um, we talk about, you know, how we can be more mindful of ensuring input and output in you know, the, the home language and that we want to try to help maintain um, social and cultural ties, um, because certainly we do see, you know, a lot of kids will hit school and all of a sudden it's all English all the time. And we want to help shore up and protect that home language as well. Mm -hmm. um, so those would be things I, I encourage families to do for encouraging developing development for any child. I think that when it comes to the question of like advocating for um bilingual children when there's a concern, you know, I do think um, parents can, can certainly do their homework and try to see, you know, who are clinicians in their area that have experience with this, who feel comfortable evaluating children from that background, you know, might they speak the languages the child speaks? If not, I do think there are good questions that can be asked about the use of interpreter if the speech language pathologist is comfortable working with an interpreter and how do they go about that process. So typically we wanna make sure that they have time to talk with the interpreter ahead of time to sort of talk about what are the purposes of the evaluation, um, what is the type of data that the SLP needs um, because sometimes interpreters, you know, their job, they have been trained to be a conduit. You know, they, they wanna take the information and the structure of the language that was originally spoken and put it into that second language for the other to understand um, exactly what has been said. Mm -hmm. um, but like, this is something I even run into issues at the hospital. Sometimes if I'm working with patients that don't speak English or Spanish, you know, they may not, they may hear a speech error, um, but because the word is still understandable, they're still going to interpret the word that was intended. Mm -hmm. But I would need to know, oh, wait, actually, there's a speech error there. Mm -hmm. um, or same thing, they may forgive certain grammatical errors because, again, the, the meaning was there. They understood what was being said. They know what's trying to be translated into the target language. And so, again, I may not get alerted to that, that error there. Mm -hmm. um, 
So having time to prep and talk through an evaluation with an interpreter is important. Um, and then certainly, I think it's a good idea to talk about, you know, what are the, the measures they use to evaluate a child and make sure they're not just relying on standardized testing. They're doing other types of informal measurement to ensure that they're getting a valid result. I think it's always relevant in the U.S. to ask, uh, are these things that are normally covered by insurance or is there any government aid for parents who need this kind of support? Um, yeah, so, you know, many of our children, you know, will see private insurance or we'll see um, Medicaid. Uh, I want to say Medicaid has generally good coverage. For private insurance, it's never a bad idea to reach out to either the clinic that you're looking at going to and asking could they check in with your insurance to make sure it's covered or to understand what kind of copay there may be. Um, certainly, if somebody's insurance doesn't cover it, um, we can always, you can also always ask about if there's options for um, like basing the cost off of income. However, if there are concerns, like there are community programs out there to help address that, um, like the early intervention program, um, as well as the CDSA, which is the, I can't remember what it stands for, um, but it provides services to children um, under three until they transition into the school system. And so those are all programs we want to make sure that parents are aware of and get a referral to. Sometimes what we have to counsel them on is that it can be a little bit of a process getting set up with that. So um, we know that when there's a CDSA referral, um, they have so much time to come out to the home and do an evaluation, which that would be covered. Um, once they have the evaluation done, if they're recommending therapy, it can still be a little bit to set up that therapy. And so while those services are covered, Sometimes, you know, parents get anxious because of the delay in starting services. And so at that point, if they're looking at doing private therapy, um, not through the CDSA, then we would recommend that they talk to the clinic to make sure they get, they're getting the coverage that they need. Wonderful. Thank you. Holly, is there anything that you wanted to add? Anything else that you think our parents should know? Just know that it's, it's an ever-changing field, probably. I think that... Um, you know, even 10 years ago, we know much more than we did then. And we'll continue to see, I think, more research come out in this area. And so, um, I mean, certainly, I think it's a, a lofty goal. I think it's a great goal. We're planning on trying to do that once um, my husband and I decide to start having kids as well. And so, um, you know, I just find, find those around you that are in that process together to have support with it. And certainly, if there's ever a doubt, um, with your speech, uh, with the child speech language development, it never hurts to reach out and say, I had some questions um, to help get some, some assurance with that too. Again, this has been uh, Holly Hinshelwood. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah. we're going to leave it there for today, but we'll be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mama. Hasta luego. ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast, 
Go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas.